Hey guys, this is Drake. Thanks so much for tuning in to our City Church podcast here. It's an honor to have you. Hey, at the end of this episode, we'd love for you to take a moment, subscribe to this podcast channel if you haven't already. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel so we can continue to serve you with content that we're putting out on a weekly basis. And in addition, if we can serve you in any way or connect with you in community in any way, you can visit our website at citychurchboulder.com and we would love to connect with you there. And lastly, and most importantly, I hope this content is helpful to you. It's encouraging, it's inspiring, and you leave better than you showed up. Enjoy. You guys doing okay this morning? Glad to be here? Good. I'm so glad that you're here. Well done. Hey, really grateful to be gathering with you this morning. My name is Drake. I'm the pastor here. Excited to be going into week four of our series, The Good Book. And so can't wait to get into the conversation today around can we trust the Bible? But before we go there, a couple of things. First of all, how cool. Thank you so much for the generosity of our church in serving these 109 families. So one more time, put your hands together for that. That's amazing. So, so very grateful. Uh, that we get to be a church in and for the city through both tangible things and show up in a lot of different ways. So thanks again for being a part of that generosity initiative. And thanks again for sticking around next week to help pack those bags and, and personalize them and make them ready for pickup. It's going to be a lot of fun. It won't take very long, but a really awesome moment. Listen, no matter where you're walking in on your spiritual journey, you are loved, safe, and welcome here at City Church. We're so glad you're here. Uh, our mission here is to help people find their way to God from where they are, and we do that by practicing the way of Jesus together in Boulder. And what that means for you is no matter where you're walking in on your spiritual journey, our, our goal, our desire is to meet you where you are and help you take some next steps in both discovering who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So really grateful uh, that you took the time to join us both in person and online today. Now, as we get into this conversation, you can go back and pick up the, uh, the last three weeks on our podcast, on our YouTube channel. We're doing a lot of work. This entire series is building on itself. And, and really this big idea of as we talk about following Jesus, it, it begins to involve the role of the scriptures, the Bible in front of you. Those seatbacks in front of you, those are a gift to you, by the way. There's journals in the lobby, our gift to you as well. And it, it begins to involve this process. But one of the questions we've been talking about is what, what role does the Bible play in following Jesus? And, and what do we do with it? There's hard stuff in there. There's confusing stuff in there. There's, there, there's lots of issues that, that we take with the Bible at times. And so we're just having a conversation over the last couple of weeks is the role of the Bible when it comes to following Jesus. And in particular today, as we talk about trusting the Bible, we're going to come back to the definition we gave you two weeks ago. This is the definition of the Bible that we've been using throughout this series. The Bible is a library of writing, so it's not a book even though it's bound as one. It's a library of writings that are both divine and human. We talked about that last week, that together tells a unified story that leads us to Jesus. This has been our working definition of the Bible throughout the series. Again, you can go back and catch that on our podcast and our YouTube channel. But we, we talked about this from the beginning, that you approach a library very differently than you approach a book. And so in the same way, many people, they pick up the Bible for the very first time and they open to page one and they get into Genesis and immediately they're like, what the heck is going on? And it doesn't take very long to put it back down and say, never mind. <laughs> and so we, we, we've uh, heard the quotes over the last couple of weeks that the Bible is the best-selling book on the planet and the least read. And so we have this unique relationship with the Bible and then even more so as followers of Jesus. The question is, what does it need to look like? And today we're talking about this really scary word of authority. Dun, dun, dun. 
And, and this is a word that a lot of people have allergic reactions to, both in our culture as a whole, but then also when we, when we add it, when we talk about the Bible as authority, now we've got to bust out an EpiPen because we're not going to survive the conversation. That's a joke. You guys can have fun with me. And as we're having this conversation, genuinely, we, talk, we start talking about the Bible as authoritative. You're like, what in the world does that mean? And our individualized Western, you know, self-made personhood what does it mean for the Bible to be authoritative? We're going to talk about that today. But I think in order just to help everyone get on the same page, this is the majority of, of responses and feelings that most people have. So watch this video real fast. Now that's power. Tell me about it. I just hear that name and I shudder. Mufasa. Ooh. Do it again. Mufasa. Ooh. Mufasa. Ooh. Mufasa. Ooh. Mufasa. Ooh. It tingles me. I'm surrounded by idiots. Okay, so you probably have the same reaction on the inside toward the idea of the Bible as authority, yeah? You guys tracking with me? Some of you are like, nope, I'm just on the other side. I'm surrounded by idiots. That's how you feel. You guys having fun today? It's going to be a fun day trying to make it as fun as I can. Okay, so we finally come to this tricky conversation around biblical authority. And, and again, we're going to ask the question today, well, what is authority? And where did the Western fear of authority come from? And, and what does it mean to say that the Bible is authoritative? That, that matters a lot. And because in our working definition of the Bible, it's a unified story pointing us to Jesus, let's start at the beginning of the story. So let's go to Genesis 3 today. It'll be on the screen in the Bibles and the seatbacks in front of you, on your phone, all of that. So this is the beginning of the story, kind of post-creation. This is where uh, this is often known as the fall, and we're going to see kind of this moment play out where in Genesis 3, the, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That word crafty can be translated intelligent and devious. And so there, there's this, this being that exists alongside Adam and Eve that shows up and is going to provide maybe a, a familiar story to you about temptation and original sin. And so we see that this crafty, intelligent, devious being comes to the woman and says, hey, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we might eat of the tree of the, uh, I'm sorry, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then the serpent says in response to the woman, you will not surely die. And then the narrative goes on. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he also ate. And the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. In this moment, the, the, the scriptures are telling us a story. This is the beginning of that story. No matter how you approach Genesis, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It matters what kind of literature you're reading and, and, and how you take this account. But if nothing else, this story is telling us about the origin of human existence and what we're finding here as it breathes this life of a story over the human condition. The, the condition that you don't have to guess at, whether you believe in talking snakes in a garden or not, the broken condition that we see across humanity is not something anyone on the planet is arguing. What everyone's trying to figure out is what do we do about the brokenness of humanity? Not does it exist or not? And in the scriptures, we see a story playing out of not only where it started, but then how it's being resolved. And that's what we're leaning into. So it's, it's quite amazing. In this moment, the, this, this being the devil that Jesus would later refer to him as, that, that word can be translated adversary. We just got off of Halloween. So you got to get it out of your mind like this, this dude in like stretchy red pants and a pitchfork, okay? Like, like it's not the devil 
that, that Tom and Jerry maybe gave to you. This is an intelligent, created being that's fallen, rebelled against God, and Jesus would later call him the devil or the adversary. And I want you to see his target. His target is trust. He goes after specifically how God defines what is good and evil and right and true. And one of the core struggles of humanity and one of the core pieces of temptation that you and I wrestle with is always going to be around trust. Not rights and wrongs, rules and regulations. Am I doing the right stuff and, not, and, and, and avoiding the bad stuff? It's around trust up against the voices in our head and the desires of our hearts. And so in essence, the, the, the temptation here up front is can you really trust God? Is he actually good or is he holding out on you? That's what's on. It's, it's not about how good does this fruit look. Can you trust God? And if you really start to dig at a deeper level, that's really the issue at the human condition. Can I trust God? And you start filling in the blanks. I think St. Ignatius says it beautifully. I'll give you this quote. He says, sin is my unwillingness or our unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Listen, I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey. I don't know what you've been exposed to about Jesus and what it means to follow him. But I think this is a beautiful summary of what we're talking about. So sin doesn't fall on a list of things to do or not do. But at its core, sin is my, if you don't like that word, you can call it brokenness. You can call it missing the mark. You can call it whatever you want. Not perfectness. Sin is my unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. It's about trust. It's about relationship. Sin is a trust issue. And I want you to think about it. No one sins or, or is broken out of obligation, right? No one's like, calendar rolls around Thursday at 7 p.m. I don't really want to, but it's time to gossip, so I got to. It's, it's that time. Shoot some text, throw some people under the bus, run my mouth a little bit at 7 o'clock. I, I mean, I, I can't miss that again. It's calendared every week. You know, I can't, you know, people don't do it out of obligation. Tuesday, three o'clock up, it's time to scroll to Instagram there. It's time to covet and envy all that my neighbors have and all the people that I want to be like and wish that they had those things that they have and those relationships that they have and the career that they have. I don't really want to do that, but it's three o'clock and I've got to, I just got off work and I got to scroll and I got to envy and covet. No one's like, oh, Monday, 11 o'clock. It's time to lust, pick up that phone, go look at some things that are going to cultivate some desire in my heart that, that, that I don't have to really work hard for. Oh, it's Friday at five o'clock. It's time to get inebriated or plastered, whichever one you like better. But like, right, it's like, oh, what is all of that? Those are not obligations. We sin because we believe a lie. Think about it. We gossip because we think that tearing down others makes us feel better. And the information that we have and controlling that and sharing it with others gives us power and control and stability over our own lives. We don't covet and envy what other people have because, because we have to. We believe the lie that what others have is what I need to truly be happy. We don't, we don't lust because, oh, it's 11 o'clock and I just have to do it. We believe the lie that short-term pleasure without the cost of intimacy has no real consequences, and it's, be it's, it's better to choose that over a relationship of love and self-sacrifice. We, we, we don't have to step into these places and get inebriated on a Friday night because it's been a hard week, but rather we believe the lie 
that escapist behaviors on a Friday night are how we get some peace finally at the end of a hard week where we've had no control over the anxiety and onslaught around our mental and emotional health. We believe lies. At the core of those lies is an issue around trust. Are you guys tracking with me? This is the story that the scriptures are laying out for you and I. This is the scenario and the story of humanity, and it continues to play out over and over again. You pick up the scriptures in front of you, you dig into them, and this goes over. It's always an issue of trust and trust. Am I going to trust myself? Am I going to trust the culture around me? Or am I going to trust God and his plans for the good life? And and can he be trusted? That's really at the core of this conversation. So let's fast forward to Jesus. Again, this story is all pointing forward toward Jesus. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks. So let's go to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus stepping in where Adam and Eve and Israel and human history and you and I have all failed. Jesus steps onto the pages of human history and he does not fail. He does exactly what we were created to do but could not do. Jesus was led up by the Spirit. This is right before his public ministry is launched. And he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There he is again, that dang devil and his, no? Okay. All right. So, so, we see again the adversary show up, this devious, intelligent, crafty being, and he's got another agenda. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, it is written. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, don't you know who I am? Jesus in this moment responds, so, so immediately, if, so there's trust involved, already being called into action, can you really trust God? And then Jesus responds, not with, don't you know who I am, but he responds with scripture. This is in the Old Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The dialogue goes on in verse five. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Really interesting. The devil throws some scripture back at Jesus, out of context. Just a heads up, anybody can do that. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And so in this moment, Jesus comes on the, or the devil's on the scene, and uses some scripture back at Jesus. Oh yeah? Well, it's also written out of context. And so then Jesus says to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And over and over again, we see this play out. He goes on in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There's a lot going on here. We, look at this story, we can look at this story in multiple different angles, but for today, there's a conversation on the table between Jesus and the, the devil, the adversary, of whether you can trust God and whether the scriptures are reliable as a means of trusting in God. And so Jesus' temptation, I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't just say no. He doesn't try really hard not to do the thing. Like, I'm not really that hungry, right? He doesn't, he doesn't try really hard not to do it. Neither does he just quote scripture at the devil like it's got some magical power. Like, haha, I said a verse therefore you got to go, right? Jesus trust in scripture. Here's the big idea for today. Jesus trust in scripture as an act of trust in God. Did you guys catch it? Jesus trusts in scripture as an act of trust in God, which is his source of victory here. So Jesus is saying what we see in the scriptures is true and right and good, and I believe it as reality. Therefore, I'm going to live into it. 
So Jesus is acknowledging that this is what reality looks like, even if his stomach says the opposite. How many times have you said something or done something stupid because you were hangry? Right? And your, your stomach gets the better of you. Even though his pride would say the opposite. Even though others on the outside would have said the opposite, Jesus chooses to acknowledge what the scriptures say as authority over his life as an act of trusting God. Are you guys tracking with me? This is a pretty big deal. And again, we're just looking at Jesus here. This is, I mean, if you're not a follower of Jesus, listen, the scriptures have no bearing on your life. You're not obligated to follow Jesus if you haven't declared allegiance to him. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we're looking at this saying, wow, look at Jesus' relationship to the scriptures, that Jesus trusting in the scriptures is functioning as spiritual authority over his life. And the question that we're wrestling as followers of Jesus is, could we come to the place where we trust in scripture like Jesus does? That's what's on the table. Now, in Western culture, we have this massive issue with authority and then even more so the idea of biblical authority. And again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then the, the, the scriptures are not authoritative to you, only if you're a follower of Jesus. But here's what's interesting. If you go to other cultures, like I was in India in September, and if you go to other cultures, authority doesn't have such a shock factor as it does here in the West in our individualized Western culture, right? Like some of the bigger issues, like if you're in India, people kind of gasp at love and forgiveness, Wait, 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 what? You want, you want us to do what? And over here in the West, we're like, yeah, love and forgiveness, at least in theory. Like, we like the idea of it feels good, sounds good on the outside. But authority is not, doesn't carry any shock factor. Everybody's like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, God's you know, God of the universe and Jesus is Lord and we do what he says. Yeah, that's not a problem. In the West, we're like, are we sure Jesus knows what he's talking about? And so it's interesting that you go to different places around the world and, and we have different issues with the scriptures and following Jesus. But in the West, right, we're like, yeah, love and forgiveness, we got that. Authority, I don't know. And, and we live in the most, possibly the most anti-authoritarian city in America, right? So bumper stickers with speak your truth and be true to yourself. And, you know, that, that ever iconic fist in, in somebody's window that says resist. And you're like, yeah. You don't even know what you're resisting, but you're excited about it, right? And we have this allergic reaction to authority all over the place, and it's increasing, and the, and the big idea in the West is, hey, you do whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone, which is, which is we can be sympathetic toward, except the problem is we often don't agree on what harm looks like. And so then we have, you know, this nice surface level fake idea of harmony and then a lot of issues underneath. But let's talk about biblical authority for a second, especially if you're not, like if you're not a follower of Jesus, you got family members who are not followers of Jesus, friends, coworkers, or you grew up around the church, you walked away from it because you're like, man, that was bogus and, and no one ever gave me any ability to stand on the things that they taught. When we look at biblical authority, what it sounds, is, it sounds like is this, like, hey, you want me to live my life, you want me to submit to the teachings of a collection of ancient literature. You want, me, you want me to put my entire life under this old ancient set of writings and ignore my own desires, ignore my own intuition, and ignore the cultural pressures and views around me and, and live into that? That's what you want me to do? And people are like, I'm out. That sounds absolutely ridiculous. And one of the reasons is, is because we misunderstand this idea of authority. So let's talk about that for a second. When we talk about authority, what we, what we most often hear and feel and react to is the idea of structural authority. 
That is top-down positional. That's the manager that really sucks at his job but still yells at you because you didn't do your job even though it was his job to do, right? It's that guy, and you're like, I really don't like that guy, but he's got a name badge, and I don't have a choice, right? That's structural authority, and sometimes people get it right for what it's worth, but, but the idea of structural authority is we have come to not trust structural authority across the board, and, and the issue with structural authority, there's a place for it, by the way, so we're not, I'm not, not down on it at all. In fact, we could argue that it does exist, at some, at some level in our relationship with God, but it's not fueled by love and trust. When it comes to structural authority, it's, it's fueled by consequence, right? You either do your job, you don't do it, and then there's a, a, there's a way that it works that if you don't do your job, then the person above you has to fire you. There's a place for that. It's just not in following Jesus and the church necessarily because structural authority doesn't set your heart free. How many of you lived in a home with a lot of really, really hard rules, maybe to an extreme, and those rules didn't necessarily change your heart? In fact, in some ways, you're like, I want to break every single one of those just because they're there. Resist, right? Like, there's a thing inside of us that looks at structural authority, and there's just a challenge. And again, not to say that it's always a bad thing, but structural authority is challenging because you and I cannot legislate morality at a heart level. I'm teaching my kids how to think and how to live and how to love and, and how to be respectful and, and I'm doing it imperfectly, but there's a goal of who they're becoming. So I don't, want you, I don't want them to just follow the rules so they can get away with it. I want them to understand why we love one another, why we have a relationship with God, why we respect mom, not just to do it or you get throttled. So structural authority has a place, but Jesus, what we see him most often operating out of is a spiritual authority. And what this means is Jesus came with an access point into reality itself. Not, not, not a position. Jesus didn't show up with a name badge. Say, hey guys, it's me. Listen up. But rather, he showed up as a person. God in the flesh, who is reality himself. And he came to introduce this reality to you and I. So central to the writers of scripture is this idea of spiritual authority that, that woven into the fa fabric of reality, the, the, the universe that you and I live in is there's this sort of moral knowledge. So every time you see the word like, like wisdom in the scriptures, it's not talking about like street smarts, like, oh yeah, I know how to, to do X, Y, and Z or, or how, to, how to navigate a relationship over here. When, when you see the word wisdom in the scriptures, it's talking about living in alignment with reality. Meaning, meaning when the scriptures are talking about wisdom, they're talking about this idea that you could know ethics like you know science. It's got that kind of moral fabric, that there are relational, spiritual, emotional laws, if you will, that are just as real in your life as the law of gravity. That, that's what it means to operate in this sphere of wisdom. And so Jesus says, hey, I came to introduce this reality the things that have been, have been broken, the, the areas that we struggle to trust God, I'm here to reintroduce it, to make it new, to restore the things that have been broken. And so in the scriptures, in the Bible, we see a lot of story and we see a lot of statements. And Jesus saw himself and his teachings and the scriptures as access points into that reality. And he says, hey, if you'll press into this, it's not just a way of thinking, it's a worldview that gets to your head and your heart and your hands. And if you'll pick this up, It'll change the way that you think and the way that you live and the way that you love. Jesus showed up with statements about reality and how the world really works. So look at Matthew 7 here, just, just to kind of help you see how people experience Jesus in this vein. When Jesus 
finished these sayings, this is just one of his teachings right after this kind of monumental, amazing Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, much like you are this morning. That's a joke. It's okay. We're getting there. Okay, just hang on with me. Okay, we're going somewhere. And he, his, he was teaching them as one who had, what? Authority. And a little jab here from Matthew, not as their scribes, which is kind of funny. So these guys taught all the time, but something about Jesus carried a spiritual authority that no one, no one else had. And the reason this is really important is because Jesus himself had zero structural authority, right? I mean, think about it. He, he, he wasn't the CEO of a company. He wasn't leading the largest band of religious zealots. It was Jesus and a, and a motley crew of guys. Zero structural authority, but everyone was floored every time he opened his mouth because every time he opened his mouth, it was like he was speaking to the human condition. He was speaking about reality itself, and people's hearts came alive. Their minds ignited with something that's been missing for a long, long time time. And Jesus says, I'm a living witness of what it truly means to be human. And so Jesus shows up on the scene carrying spiritual authority. And what I don't want you to miss this morning is it's not a power to control or manipulate or coerce people into behaving a certain way. What's, what's amazing is when, is when people would opt out of listening to Jesus, he would just let them. He doesn't smite them. He doesn't write them a parking ticket. He doesn't charge it to their purgatory account and say that you're going to pay for that later. Jesus has this incredible respect for human dignity and freedom that even if our decisions are going to corrupt us from the inside out, he will let us volitionally choose to step into relationship or not. Jesus carries incredible spiritual authority, but it's all introduced in love. And so then what Jesus puts on the table and what's in front of us every week as we gather is you and I have to decide if we're going to live in alignment with Jesus and the scriptures for our lives. That's what's on the table. If you're a follower of Jesus, ironically, we still wrestle with that, don't we? We're still constantly coming under the reality of what Jesus says life is like and are we going to trust him in that? And if you're on the outside looking in, you're wrestling, hey, can I trust Jesus? Is he really who he said he is? Can he do in my life what he said he would do? Are the things that he has for my life actually good? So let's talk for just a moment about the logic of biblical authority. I, I know you probably feel like you're, you're listening to like some, some you know, low-grade class at CU right now on biblical authority and structures and things. Hang with me for a second. We're going to break it up. We're going to get into application, and then you're going to be like, Whew, it's over. Okay, we got it. So hang with me for a, for a second. This is really important in the world that we live in today. Let's talk about the logic of biblical authority for just a second. First of all, all authority, this is what we're kind of summarizing today. All authority is rooted in God who is reality. That, that's the idea behind this conversation today. All authority is rooted in God who is reality. So if God is relational, which we see he is over and over again, then what we see is he has chosen to use other people. So, so he used the prophets and the apostles, and then Jesus is the ultimate example of God using human agents to bring about his kingdom on earth. So God being relational, every form of authority is rooted in God who is reality. And then here's what that means. When we live under the authority of the Bible, the scriptures, this library of writings, this story and statements that talk about life as reality, we are living under the authority of God himself. That's the conclusion. That's Jesus' worldview of the scriptures. That's the early church's worldview of the scriptures. That's the apostles' worldview of the scriptures. That's been the primary worldview, the orthodox worldview of the church for the last 2,000 years. That when we live under the authority of the Bible, we're living under the authority of God himself. 
And so when we follow and listen and live under and submit to and obey the scriptures, we do all of that as an act of worship and overflow. Like God loves me so much. It's my privilege to trust him, trust his plan for the good life and live that out. I'm making much of God by trusting in him. It's an act of worship. And the opposite is also true. When we, when we rebel against God, when we choose not to trust him, when we live out of alignment with him, then there are consequences that follow. So let's talk for just a second about this Bible, the scriptures being a story. Like how do you live under the authority of story? Because we talked about it last week and the week before that. Like there's some things that you obey and don't obey. And like, how do you pick and choose? And how, how do you know how the Bible, the Bible applies to our lives? And so if the Bible is a story, there are commands that are right for one part of the story that are not for another. So I'm going to invite Daniel to come. We're going to give you an example in just a second. But N.T. Wright wrote this incredible book I recommended a couple weeks ago, and he has a specific essay talking about how, how, can, how can the Bible be authoritative. And he talks about the Bible as, as a five-act play. You guys ever been to a play and enjoyed like the different acts and as it transitions, right? So think about the Bible laying out a five-act play. And so you've got multiple acts up front, and now you and I, he would say we're living in Act 5, which is the moment between Jesus' resurrection, the church starting, and then the book of Revelation. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, we're living in Act 5, as in Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4 have already played out. It's creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and now it's the church, okay? Five acts, and each act transitions like you're in a play, and we're living in the middle of this last act, and, and so if, what you'll notice is as you read the scriptures, which has been the goal of this series, is to open it for yourself. Don't, don't listen to Drake. Open it for yourselves. Read it for yourself. It, it's not so much a list of what to do. There are things in the scriptures that's like, hey, do this, don't do this. Absolutely. But there's less what to do and more stories about reality that you and I have to live into. And so you, we ask the question, how is story authoritative? Think about it. A story gets into your head and it gets into your heart and it creates a compelling worldview that then allows us to live it out. So listen to N.T. Wright here and then Daniel's got something for us. This is N.T. Wright uh, just, just on this note. He says, the unfinished narrative, that those five acts, so we're in act five, the story's not over. The unfinished narrative functions like an unfinished play in which those who belong to Jesus Christ are taking forward the drama towards its intended conclusion. And this is actually a far stronger and more robust version of authority than the one which simply imagines the Bible as a source book for true dogmatic and ethical propositions, right and wrong, rules and regulations. Of course, such propositions are to be found in it. Yeah, don't murder people, love your neighbor. It's in there. And they matter. So it's not that there are not ways to live in the scripture, but the majority is story. And he says they matter as the tips of a much, much larger iceberg, which is the entire story. So we're living out in a way that's in alignment with the narrative. He goes on. He says, and it is by soaking ourselves in that whole drama that we are to live with and under the scripture's authority. Not simply by knowing which bits to look up on which topics, but by becoming people of the story. That, that language sound familiar? About spiritual formation, becoming people of the story. People formed and shaped in our imaginations and intuitions so that we come to know by second nature, we become the kind of people that not only know what the scriptures say, which is part of it, but why it says those things and, and that we come to trust and believe in it. This makes sense to you guys? It's quite beautiful. And it really helps to start. So, so we're not just invited to parrot 
what the Bible says. The Bible says this. The Bible, that's not it. We come alive. We grow up and we take responsibility in how the story has moved forward and where it must go next. And we're living it out in that manner. And here's what's cool is we're invited as followers of Jesus to improvise toward the conclusion while remaining faithful to the narrative, right? So there's a story arc that we're living out, but there's a lot of integrity. There's a lot of, of, of um, empowerment when it comes to how you and I live it out. So it's like a musician. So Daniel's going to play for just a second. And um, um, like a musician, understanding key and time are critical to things being pleasing to the ear and touching you at a soul level, right? So, so a good musician can discern what's appropriate within the boundaries of key and time. It's, so Daniel has perfect pitch, so you can kind of hear any key at any time and play into that. And a lot of other musicians can do that too. So a uniquely like, like creative musician understands the rules, the boundaries of key and time, but then can play into a key and create something incredible. You guys tracking with me? Let me give you a demonstration. So Daniel, give us the key of E, if you will, like maybe some chord progressions in the key of E. Okay, so those are some of the notes within the key of E. There's no time yet. He didn't give you any time. He just played four chords for you. And there are some, so there are some notes that don't get along with, with, a, with an E chord, right? Can you give us one of those? Okay, so unless you're watching a thriller or something like that, then right, there are some notes that don't play well with others when you're inside the key. So, so the key of E already has some boundaries, so, some, some things set up that you have to live into what's already existing. And every good musician knows that you have to play by the rules, but there's still a lot of liberty. And so uh, th this key, uh, he just did like a, a classic punk rock chord progression. So hey, give us, give us just uh, um, kind of a, the, the E chords, or give us the progression with a little bit of time. Okay, you hear it? Anybody hear any songs coming to mind just as you hear those chords? Maybe a little bit, you're like, something's familiar there. Daniel, can you give us the words to that song so we know what you're playing? So I won't hesitate no more, no more. It cannot wait. I'm yours. Let's go. Everybody start singing a little bit. You see? It gets you, right? Now, here's what's amazing is that different musicians can say, take the same chord progression, the same punk rock chords, and then take the liberty and the boundaries within it and then create something incredible. And so what's another popular song that people might know in the room? You can't laugh while you do it. <laughs> okay. Can't read my, can't read my, no, he can't read my poker face. She's got me like nobody. Let's go. Put your hands together. How amazing is that? Okay, so, so you've got Jason Mraz, and then you've got, so we can't finish that song because it's inappropriate and we're in church. But, um, and then, right, what's amazing is you have different incredible musicians that understand the responsibility of staying within a key and operating within time, and they create different things, so much so that there's probably a couple of songs that hit you at such a deep heart level that it moves you, and it takes you back to a childhood moment. You got one of those for us, Daniel? Ooh. Can you feel the love tonight, that's way, that's, that's way outside of his vocal range, but he did it for me. And then, listen, here's what's amazing is, is you start looking at, uh, you, people could be really, I can't believe that the key of E is so restrictive. 
It's ridiculous. I want to play whatever notes I want to play. When people understand that actually the key of E is beautiful, and when you operate within the key and you play with the time signatures, you get a ton of permission and liberty to live it out in different ways. And every now and then, something iconic happens that the entire world knows. And so songs like this. You got to sing it with him. You know the words. Here we go. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. He took the midnight train going anywhere. There you go. Put your hands together for Daniel. Well done. Well done. Okay, so I asked him to play higher than any of the normal keys that he plays in, just so he had to get that falsetto in there. So, well done, Daniel. Uh, I was going to, good job, good job, good job. Uh, I was going to hop in and play a guitar solo alongside him with that, but I didn't want to melt your faces off. So here we are. Let's just keep going. Okay, so, so do you guys understand what we're talking about? In the same way that the Bible is a story that we are living out in Act 5, Church to Revelation, there's there's permission, there's liberty, and there's creativity, but there's still a narrative that we live into, much like a good musician can take a song and play within that scope, and it still be inc incredibly creative and diverse. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the Bible being authoritative. There is a story arc. There is a truly good way to be human that is in line with loving God and loving people and knowing yourself and, quite frankly, loving yourself. There is a reality that God invites us to know and to live out. But within that space, there's tons of liberty and permission. And so as we, as we wrap up this conversation today, I want you to understand that the Bible is not a rule book, but it does have a lot of rules. And so we got to talk about that, right? You're like, okay, how, how, do you, how do you balance the tension of story with statements? And so let me give you just a couple of quick tools, again, because the series has been built on equipping you not just, to, not just to know more about the Bible, but to begin to read it for yourself, understand the story, much like N.T. Wright said, to soak ourselves in it, where we, we become the kind of people, not that just can be patient, but are patient, that, that we're being formed at a deeper level. So four basic rules this morning for you. This is quick notes for you. You can take them of hermeneutics. This is just a word, fancy Bible college word that talks about proper interpretation of Scripture. We talked about it earlier. Even the devil's taking Scripture out of context. So if you want to, you can pick and choose and make the Bible say anything you want it to. But if it's a collection of writings, a library of writings telling a unified story leading us to life in Jesus, then there is a story that we're paying attention to, and there are parts of reality that we pay attention to as well. And so four basic rules of hermeneutics, just as you're reading the Bible, and this is how we get to the conclusions that we have. Number one is authorial intent. When you read the scriptures, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, the Bible's not hiding its humanness and divineness. And so you look at the original author and the original audience, who are they writing to? What is the context that we're looking at rather than just trying to get a devotional thought to help me through my Monday? Number two, we, we understand that the Bible is a long, complex story. And the overall narrative is authoritative for all Jesus followers. So that's how, that's how we make sense of Genesis 3 and Jesus and Matthew 4 and then some of the Levitical law stuff about how you can't have bacon in the middle. And you're like, wait a minute. But we do have bacon, exactly. See, you can't trust the Bible. This whole series, I, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Right, we talk about it. 
We say, no, no, there's really good understandings here. There are specific parts of the story that are not binding because you and I live in a different part of the story. What was true in in, in Act 2 is no longer true in Act 5. That's how we begin to process some of that. Now, we live, this is what you need to know, you and I live at the same part of the story as the New Testament church. So, just to help you out, a general rule of thumb, and this has been true uh, in biblical interpretation for thousands of years, this is orthodox understanding, true of all Jesus followers across the globe, that we live at the same part of the story as the New Testament church. And so what that means is the Bible sit in front of you, you pick it up, and you turn to Matthew, which is the beginning of that New Testament that we looked at last week. And from Matthew to the right, as a general rule, we obey it all. We follow it all. It all functions as authority for us. Unless there's like a, a clearly specific moment, like for an individual, when Paul is writing in one of his letters, and he's like, hey, and on your way here, don't forget my jacket. It's a nice North Face one. I left it over there. Please don't forget it. And my gloves might be in the pocket. So make sure you bring your jacket with you when you come see me. Uh, you know, if you read that and you're like, oh no, I've got to go to the Middle East to go find Paul's jacket. And you're reading the Bible maybe a little bit outside of its own context, right? That's not for you. But it's normally very obvious what's not for you and what is. This will sometimes um, require cultural translation where the meaning of symbols has changed. So me, yeah, one of the commands we see often in the scripture is to say, hey, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's not going to fly on a Sunday, is it? Some of you are like, yes, please, let's do it. <laughs> Others of you are like, absolutely not, don't even touch me. Uh, uh, we were having conversations about, like the side hug is not really there anymore, but now there's like this, this dap thing going on. And we have all these different ways of like saying hello <laughs> in the West but please don't kiss me, right? That, that's the idea. But we don't have to obey that because it's been a, a, a translation of culture. Women and head coverings, right? I, I don't see anyone in the room that, that brought their, oh man, I'm forgetting what it's called. Is it a hijab? Is that, am I saying it right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was just in India. I'm having, you know, get dyslexic on the inside. But you know what's interesting? All the women who are followers of Jesus in that culture are still wearing, wearing head coverings because it's culturally, culturally appropriate where they live. And so there's little things like that, like men in long hair and tattoos and foot washings and honor the emperor. Well, you don't have an emperor, so you're going to have a hard time honoring the emperor that you don't have. But we actually still obey that. We just obey it in a different part of the story with the government and the authorities that you have around you. So you might look at these biblical principles and you say, okay, if it's this simple, then why is there so much confusion and struggle in the church when it comes to reading the scriptures and following it? Let me give you just a couple of quick tips and then the band's going to come. As we're having this conversation, there are essentials in the scriptures that all followers agree across history in the world. And so they're, they're essential theology. You can go to our website and look at like some of the core doctrines and what it means to believe in Jesus and follow him and the church, things like that. There's essential doctrines and what it means to follow Jesus has been true in this entire part of Act 5. But some of the issues that we have is even when the Bible is clear in its meaning, it doesn't always mean that we are clear in its interpretation. I mean, you and I just have to acknowledge that we all bring baggage and bias and assumptions and our own personality to the reading of Scripture. And so a lot of times what we do is we show up as the authority and we say, this is what it's got to mean. This is what it has to mean or how I'm going to make it fit into my narrative. And the invitation from Jesus is to humble ourselves and open up our hearts and minds. And, and rather than making our biases fit the text, we openly approach the Scriptures and allow it to speak over our lives. But I would say the biggest issue that we have in our culture today is that most of the areas that that we take issue with the Bible are not where it's unclear, 
but where it is very clear. That's our issue with the scriptures. If we just don't like some of it, right? We don't, we don't like what the scriptures have to say about money and stuff, especially with Black Friday right around the corner. We don't like what the, what the scriptures say about relationships and, and the need to be in community. We don't like what the scriptures have to say about sex and sexuality and marriage and judgment and social justice. We don't like what the scriptures have to say about heaven and hell. We don't like what the scriptures have to say about Jesus being the only way to be forgiven, to be saved, to be set free. We don't like that stuff. That's where the tension comes from. And so you and I are invited to lean into the dialogue and the story, the story and the statements of Scripture, and pay attention to tradition of how the Bible has been read for thousands of years and allow that to begin to shape how we think when we follow Jesus. The Scriptures are pointing us to life in Jesus in alignment with, with what He says is reality, what it means to be truly human. And we have to be careful that when we study the scriptures, we're not trying to, to work alignment into our own personal agendas. It's just so, so easy to do. But rather, we open the scriptures to discover God's will and live into it rather than manipulate it. And we, we, we can all manipulate it. In fact, sometimes even subconsciously. And we've got to be careful not to read for our own validation, but rather to invite God through revelation to reveal what is true about us and the world that we live in and the culture around us what is good and right and true. And, and listen, it's always invitational to know God and his will. It's relational. Not rights, wrongs, rules and regulations. Behave a certain way and then God will finally like you. Wherever you stand on that, that, that side of morality, of being good enough or never being good enough, Jesus says that's not what's on the table. The invitation is a restored relationship with your creator. And so the big idea today is very simple. If Jesus trusts in Scripture as an act of trusting God, then we trust in Jesus. The natural conclusion is that we can trust in Scripture as an act of trusting God. That's our relationship to the Scriptures. Not obey this book that fell out of heaven and we have no confidence of where it came from, but to trust in the person of Jesus and his confidence in the scriptures for our lives. And it all comes back to trust. We have a decision to make. Am I going to trust myself? Am I going to trust the culture around me? Am I going to trust in Jesus? And when Jesus says, hey, repent and believe this good news, that word repent means to rethink everything that you know about reality. Everything you think is true, everything that you think will lead you to the good life, he's inviting us to rethink and reevaluate and adopt his worldview, to trust in Jesus and his teachings that it will actually lead to your good and the good of others. So the simple question for you today is, is where does your struggle lie? What are you struggling with today? And my invitation for you would be very simple. What, what does God have to say about it in the scriptures? Where, where, where do you need to trust in Jesus? Where are you struggling there? Is there a clear command in the scriptures that you simply don't like? Is there a clear statement about reality that, that your heart and mind are just resisting? 
Is there an area of obedience that, that you've just been dragging your feet on? Because you're like, Jesus, this is so uncomfortable and so hard and I don't like it and I don't know what's going to happen. And can we trust in Jesus that what he has for us is our greatest good? It's been the same invitation every week for the last four weeks that you would pick up the Bible if you've never done it before. You would open to the Gospel of John. That's his best and closest friend, eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And you would read a chapter a day. You'd pick up the tools in our lobby, a journal, and you would start to read the story for yourself and figure out how you play into that story. How will I continue to live it out? So as the band comes, I'm gonna take a moment and pray for you and you have a couple of different ways you can respond. So I'm just gonna invite you to bow your heads with me. Just enter a moment of just reflecting internally on what God's doing in the room today. God, thank you so much for Jesus. That he would come and live the life that we couldn't live. He would do the things that we were created to do but failed to do. He would willingly lay down his life in our place for our sins, not only to extend forgiveness, but then to give us new life, that he would be buried and rise again, proving that he was who he said he was, that he can do in our lives what he said he would do, and he would give us new life. For anyone who trusts in Jesus. And he didn't extend that invitation with conditions of behaving a certain way having all of our ducks in a row, not having crossed certain lines, but simply to trust in this incredible love that you've demonstrated. God, for some of us in the room, we're followers of you and, and we're just wrestling with, with what it means to follow you. There's some things that, that we're holding tightly onto. Jesus, can I really trust you with this? With my relationships, with my career, with my future, my money, my stuff, with my identity, my sexuality? Can I really trust you with my kids, my family? Can I really trust you after I've been hurt over and over again, after I've been betrayed? Can I really trust you after all the bad things that I see happening around the world? Can I really trust you? God, today I pray that the truth of Scripture not only speaks to that reality, but with the Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts and minds and reinforce what is true today, what is good and right and beautiful, what you're inviting us into. For some of my friends in the room, they're wrestling with what it means to follow you. They're not yet sure where they stand in relationship to you. And I pray that this story captures their heart and their imagination that it's all pointing to a God who loves them, a God who has pursued them, a God who has made a way to be forgiven, a God who has invited us back into his family, and all of it's through trusting in you. And maybe for some of my friends today, they would take a step to trust in you for the first time. And in that space, I pray that there would be a reality in their hearts and minds that not only is heaven rejoicing over that decision, but so do we as a church. And for everyone in the middle that is still wrestling, still trying to figure it out, God, I pray that they find that this is an incredibly safe community, 
to do the hard work, to ask the hard questions, to wrestle with what it means to follow you. And in the space of safe, loving relationships here, we'd encounter your love for us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.